It was Thanksgiving Day, 1985, when Scott McCauley faced the holiday all by himself for the very first time. His mom and dad had recently divorced. Nobody was talking to anybody, he said. I was looking at a pretty rotten Thanksgiving. But that's when Scott had an idea. He took out an ad in the local newspaper. It read, an invitation to Thanksgiving dinner for the first 12 people to RSVP. He figured that there were at least 12 folks as lonely as him that Thanksgiving with nowhere to go. And he was right. Scott's Thanksgiving feast went so well, he repeated it the next year. And every year since for the last 33 Today, Scott hosts a free Thanksgiving dinner for over 100 guests. Everyone who RSVPs is welcomed. Scott's son, Walter, is the designated turkey carver. And over the years, Scott has fed widows and homeless people and college kids who couldn't make it home. He's had infants attend, celebrating their very first Thanksgiving, as well as elderly attend celebrating their last Thanksgiving. Once a woman who was living in her car parked on the street and waited until everyone had left before she came in for dinner. One year, two people crawled under the table to eat. No questions were asked, Scott said. They were just served. Scott recalls the man who had recently lost his wife. After dinner, he grabbed an apron, strapped it on, and helped Scott wash the dishes. One of Scott's favorite memories was the year his mom came. She was dying of cancer, and she said she just wanted to be with family that year. Scott's dad also came, and Scott recalled the scene etched in his mind. He said, I can still see them sitting on the couch together, holding hands years after their divorce. Scott has countless such stories. His Thanksgiving feast has become a tradition in his hometown. And it stands out as a beautiful illustration of how Jesus described God's kingdom here in Luke chapter 14. In verse 12, Jesus is at a dinner party. Then he also said to the Pharisee who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back. And you be repaid. Each year, Scott invites folks with nowhere to go versus this Pharisee who invited people who could reciprocate the invitation. If you give only to get, friends, you're not giving at all. Sadly, a lot of, a lot of what's called Christian fellowship is really just back scratching. You scratch my back, and I'll scratch yours. How often do we invite folks into our circle to really enlarge it instead of just recycling relationships? Jesus said, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When you throw a party, why not make it a kingdom party? Rejoice with folks who rarely have a reason to rejoice. And if you do, God will see to it that you get invited to the party that counts. Now, when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. 
Then Jesus said to him, A certain man gave a great supper and invited many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. Now in ancient times, an invitation to a party was in two phases. The initial invite was received well in advance, but on the day of the event, the host alerted his guests to a specific time. But here, between the initial invitation and the day of alert, there were some distractions, some stuff had come up, so that they all, with one accord, began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. I read about an elementary school principal who collected excuses from kids when they were absent. Here was his all-time favorite. Dear school, please excuse Johnny from being absent. October 28, 29, 30, 31, 32, and 33. Signed, sincerely, Johnny's dad. Sure. It's been said the man who is good at coming up with excuses is seldom good in anything else. And here, an invitee is alerted that it's party time. But he says he needs to survey a tract of land. That's a pretty dirty excuse, if you ask me. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. As with the land, the guy already bought the oxen, so what's the hurry? Why do they need a test drive all of a sudden? And still another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. (laughs) I would imagine he sees this wife every day. Why can't he slip away for a few hours? Here's a guy too focused on his family. And here are three excuses for putting off Jesus that are still pretty popular today. Business and possessions and family. Now, in their right place, all three can be good, but you can make an idol out of anything, a piece of ground or a business, a few oxen or some stuff, or even your family. And all three were excuses not to come to the party. So that servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded and still there is room. Fed up with these excuses, the master invites folks who are really going to appreciate his invitation. Rather than the rich and famous, he sends invitations to the poor and the maimed and the lame, and the blind, people who aren't welcomed as much. You know, I've noticed that often churches like to plant themselves next to the hip, upscale neighborhoods. They target the wealthy and the affluent and the sophisticated, whereas Jesus swings the doors of God's kingdom open to the down and out. I like that. It reminds me of a Boston couple who planned an expensive wedding and reception. 
They rented the classiest hotel in town. All arrangements were made. When at the last minute, the groom bailed, he got cold feet. He decided he couldn't go through with it. And because of the hotel's strict reimbursement policy, the bride stood to lose a lion's share of her money. So she decided to go through with the reception party. Her first step was to change the menu to boneless chicken in honor of the ex-groom. Then she invited the homeless shelters and the rescue missions all across Boston. On this night, her special night, waiters dressed in tuxedos served hors d'oeuvres to bag ladies and panhandlers. People who normally ate on half-gnawed pizza feasted on chicken cordon bleu. Vagrants sipped champagne and street people ate chocolate wedding cake. Everybody danced to big band melodies throughout the night. I'm not sure she realized it, but the jilted bride gave us a glimpse into God's heart. For verse 23 continues. Then the master, concerned about the fact that there was still room, said to the servant, go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. Notice the operative phrase here. God's chief desire is that my house may be filled. And that's still God's top priority, a full house. And if the first invitees are uninterested, comb the highways and hedges for the misfits, for the oddballs. For I say to you, that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. The excuse makers, those who wanted the rain checks, will never get in. You need to know, nowhere in the scripture does God guarantee you a second chance. Please, whatever you do, don't put God on hold and expect him to still be on the line when you're ready to answer. Isaiah 55 verse 6 reads, Seek the Lord while he may be found. The day may come when it'll be too late. Verse 25, now great multitudes went with Jesus. And apparently this was too many, for in the next few verses he thins out the crowd. And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, Brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, these were hard words then, and they're hard words still today. That's why we need to really understand what Jesus is saying here. Certainly, he's not advocating a literal hatred for one's family. If so, he would be contradicting other Bible verses. No, here Jesus is using a literary device. It's called hyperbole or exaggeration for emphasis. In essence, he's saying, if you want to be my disciple, your love for me should be so strong that it makes your love for anyone else look like hate. In other words, Jesus tolerates no rivals. Other relationships can be important to us, but our love for Jesus should tower over all other connections. He should be paramount. He says, and whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Crosses, of course, were well known in the Roman Empire. 
Crucifixion was used to express Rome's mastery over its subjects. It was total subjugation of an individual's will to the will of Rome. And this is what Jesus means to bear your cross. If I want to be his disciple, if I want to be a follower of Jesus, it takes an unreserved surrender of my life to him. My plans, my desires become secondary to his will for my life. Hey, we should realize any belief that does not command the person who holds it is not a real belief. Someone's belief might intrigue me. I might find it interesting. But if it doesn't command my allegiance, it's not a true belief. So before you follow Jesus, make sure you're ready for the commitment. Have you counted the cost? Jesus says, for which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. You want to be embarrassed? Start something you can't finish? Don't make a rash commitment you're unable to fulfill. Verse 31, or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. In other words, we need to think it through and count the cost of surrender. I read where the American Planning Association says that 90% of construction projects today exceed their initial estimate. That's 9 out of 10 building projects are going to have cost overruns. It usually costs more than you think. And the same is true with following Jesus. I mean, some people make rash promises and never follow through. Some people are guilty of a fair weather faith that fizzles over time. They don't really mean what they say. This is not the kind of commitment that Jesus desires. Jesus wants sincere followers. He wants people who follow him through the thick and thin of life. Hey, following Jesus is the best move you'll ever make, but you need to think it through. Understand what he requires to be a serious follower of our Lord Jesus. Count the cost. For there is a cost. Someone defined commitment as the willingness to be unhappy for a while. Let me say that again. Commitment is a willingness to be unhappy for a while. This occurs in everyone's Christianity. There are moments that due to your surrender, you suffer a sense of loss. Or due to your obedience, it creates some unpleasant circumstances. Hey, Christianity isn't 24-7 bliss, nothing but warm fuzzies. Jesus never promised that. In fact, it can be a tough road to hoe. And a Christian has to count the cost. Thomas Huxley once said, it doesn't take much of a man to be a Christian, but it takes all there is of him. Jesus gave all he had to take possession of all that we are. Thomas Nelson was one of the 56 men who signed the Declaration of Independence. 
He supported American troops in the Revolutionary War, buying munitions for Washington's army. Ironically, in the Battle of Yorktown, British commander Cornwallis made Nelson's home his headquarters, partly because he knew Washington wouldn't fire on the mansion out of loyalty for his friend. But when Nelson saw what was happening, he insisted that Washington attack and rain down fire on his own home. America won the war, but Thomas Nelson's mansion was destroyed. Nelson had counted the cost. And you and I are asked to do the same. Jesus instructs us in verse 33. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. For salt is good. But if salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. Now you remember in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus told his followers, You are the salt of the earth. Christians are the spice of life. We flavor the world around us with God's grace and truth. Yet like salt, we can lose our saltiness. We can grow bland. Our commitment can become dull. It loses its edge. We get complacent. We stop acting on our faith. And salt that's lost its saltiness is worthless. If it no longer influences and impacts people, it gets thrown out, Jesus says. He closes the chapter. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, once there were two uppity, highbrow pastors. And they were asked to speak at a gathering on the other side of the tracks. But when they arrived, they walked into the room. It was full of drug addicts and prostitutes and street people. And both these pastors had prepared sophisticated lectures. Well, the first man, he turned to his colleague and he said, man, I'm in trouble. My sermon's not going to work on this crowd. Well, the second pastor, he admitted, he said, I'm in the same boat you're in. Well, after thinking for a while, the initial pastor, he responded. He said, I'll tell you what we should do. I'll take the prodigal son out to the far country and you bring him back home. The point being, every human heart can resonate with the parable of the prodigal son. You know, you can't be conscious of your sin and not be moved emotionally by this wonderful parable. No other passage conveys as convincingly the role of God as our Father and the hope of His forgiveness than the parable of the prodigal son. The story of the prodigal is just one parable in a set of three. Luke 15 also speaks of a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. And we'll tackle all three. Verse 1 begins. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And isn't this interesting? There was something about Jesus that attracted the outcasts and the sinners. In contrast, Philip Yancey writes about some of his followers today. He says, somehow we've created a community of respectability in the church. So that the down and out who flocked to Jesus when he lived on earth no longer feel welcome. How did Jesus, the only perfect person in history, manage to attract the notoriously imperfect? And the answer is real, risky, 
far-reaching love. Jesus really loved people. Once there was a child from Chicago who walked miles across town in the cold to attend D.L. Moody Sunday School. Someone asked the boy why he traveled so far when there were other Sunday schools closer. The little guy replied, because they love a feller over there. And this is why the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the militia members, this is what they all sensed about Jesus. They knew he loved them beyond a shadow of a doubt. Jesus was able to touch a sinner's heart with his love. You know, today, church members, they attempt to touch hearts by being relevant. That's the big push today. The idea is to play the people's musical style and speak their language and identify culturally. But what really captures a person's heart is the knowledge that he or she is loved. What made Jesus so attractive and so appealing to sinners was and still is his amazing love. And the Jewish leaders, they recognized this magnetism. The Pharisees and scribes, they murmured saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. He even eats with them. Jesus ate with sinners. This was a big deal. In the ancient culture, to break bread was to be one with the other guests. I mean, it put everyone at the table on the same level. It was an ultimate expression of love. And these Jews, they didn't get love. Judaism was about law, not love. See, Jewish religion had nothing to say to sinners. To become part of the Jewish family, you first had to clean up your act and earn your place and observe the rituals. See, sinners were left on the outside looking in. The notion that there was a God who went out of his way to love and search out for lost sinners and restore them to the family was unheard of among the Jews. That's why these three parables in this chapter were so revolutionary. So Jesus spoke this parable to them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. A shepherd once explained how a sheep gets lost. He nibbles his way into trouble. That's how a sheep gets lost. He nibbles his way into trouble. He just moves from one tuft of grass to another, to another, to another, until he finds himself through the fence. He's lost his bearings. He just nibbled himself into trouble. Disaster begins with distraction. He wanders away because of foolishness. And likewise, there are many people who've strayed from God down the same slippery slope. They inch away. At the time, their slide seems imperceptible. They just walk away in baby steps. Like falling asleep on a float In the ocean, when you wake up, you've drifted too far from shore to get back on your own. Hey, thank God there's a lifeguard. And in this story, there's a shepherd. Jesus loves the lost person to such an extent, he leaves the herd to fetch this one lost lamb. Verse 5, I love this picture. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. 
The shepherd doesn't even make the wayward sheep walk back on his own. No, he carries the sheep on his shoulders and he rejoices all the way home. The other night, two of my grandsons, they'd climbed up on this wall outside my house and I heard my son rebuke them. You climbed up there, now you get down. And that's a good lesson to learn. I mean, don't put yourself in trouble you can't solve. That's a good lesson. But thankfully, this shepherd didn't take that attitude. Jesus rescues formerly lost sheep, even when they can't save themselves. He puts them on his shoulders, and he rejoices all the way home. And when the shepherd comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Now the Jewish Pharisees, they had an adage. They had a motto of their own. It went like this. There is joy before God when those who provoke him perish from the world. Whereas Jesus played off of their quotation to express God's true heart. The opposite attitude is God's heart. There is joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. And then verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? You know, the sheep gets lost through foolishness, but you lose a coin by carelessness. When a Jewish woman got married, she wore a headdress that was usually decorated with 10 coins. The coins were the equivalent of her wedding ring. And to lose a coin was a major catastrophe. This woman had accidentally lost one of her silver coins. And when she realized what was missing, she frantically swept the house in search of the valuable item. And when she had found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Heaven throws a party when just one sinner repents. Trust me, it's going to be better in heaven. It's going to be like Times Square on New Year's Eve when the ball drops. And we should all get excited when a new believer repents and comes to Jesus. I love it. On occasion, when I give an altar call and somebody comes forward to receive Christ and we all clap. I like it when we clap. That's what heaven's going to be like. Joy explodes in God's heart and in the halls of heaven when the lost are found. And then verse 11. Then he said, a certain man had two sons. And take note, the story is introduced by the mention of two sons. We usually focus on the prodigal or the rebellious son. We'll find that a second son also plays a crucial and strategic role in Jesus' parable. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, 
Give me the portion of goods that falls to me. Give me my inheritance. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together. The kid brother is moving out. He's got his inheritance now. He's tired of the old man's rules. It's time to become his own man, to live his own life. And so he journeyed to a far country and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. The word translated prodigal means wasteful. He wasted his life and his inheritance. For a season, this young man financed the porn shops and the brothels in this far country. He ran up a huge bar tab, no doubt. He partied hardy. He wasted away not only his wealth, but his health and his mind and his spirit. And at fleeing's end, he was a shell of the man he had been. Verse 14, but when he had spent all, and it was probably a sizable amount, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. His wastefulness, coupled with a slumping economy, simultaneously hit their peak. He's out of money now, and he can't get a job. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And I would imagine in our culture, slopping hogs is probably embarrassing enough. But for a first century Israeli with high hopes of success, you can't imagine a more humiliating job than to work with the pigs. The law of Moses forbids Jews from eating pork. Pigs were unclean animals and made you unfit for worship. And this young man finds himself in the pig pen. This is not what they had in mind when they told him he needed to go out and bring home the bacon. This is not what they had in mind. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate. And no one gave him anything. Notice that last line. No one gave him anything. Hey, while the guy had lots of money that he was spending on his friends, he had all kinds of people around him. But now his posse's disappeared. His funds dried up and the posse vanished. The life of the party's now on his own. You know, it's been said, only after you hit rock bottom are you willing to look up. That was the case for this prodigal. And verse 17 is the turning point. But when he came to himself, I like that phrase, when he came to himself, when he, come, when he came to his senses, when it finally hit him, the young man said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. And will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. When the boy came to his senses, he remembered his father. You know, folks who worked for his dad were treated like kings compared to the deplorable conditions he was suffering. And so he arose and he came to his father. His logic echoes Romans 2 verse 4 where Paul told the Romans that the goodness of God 
is what leads you to repentance. When this bad boy recalled his father's kindness, he humbled himself. He did an about face. He headed home. He would take his chances with dad. And as a side note, here's another example of baseball. In, about baseball season, you know that, don't you? Here's another example of baseball in the Bible. The prodigal son made a home run. Made a home run. And somebody, one person chuckled right over here. It's interesting, the Jewish Talmud also told a story of a prodigal son. He too returned home. This son came home hoping that his dad would restore him as a son. And though the dad took him back, it was as a servant, not a son. Thus, in the minds of these Pharisees to whom Jesus was speaking, a sinner could be forgiven, but he forfeited his right to be a son. Once he'd thrown away his inheritance, he had no more right to be a son, according to the Jews. He had no more right to enjoy his father's blessing. False sonship was now out of the question. It was reserved for the Pharisees, not the sinners. But that's not the portrait of God that Jesus paints. For he continues his story. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion. And he ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Years ago, there was a popular Christian song entitled, The Day God Ran. It noted how God is never in a hurry. The Almighty walks and he rides and he even sits. But here is the only place in the Bible where God runs. And what would prompt God to run? His heart propels his feet to move whenever he sees a prodigal son or daughter humble themselves and come home to him. Even when the son was still a great way off, his father saw him. Implied in that statement is that the father was looking and he was waiting and he was hoping and he was praying for his lost son to come home. It was evidence of love's longings. Imagine this young man. He's walking down the dirt road. His head's down. He's kind of kicking the dirt with his feet. He's rehearsing his apology over and over in his mind. He's hoping that his father will even agree to meet him. What a shocker. To now see his dad running down the long driveway. And before he could get a word out of his mouth, dad grabs him in this huge bear hug. And smothers him with affection. And this is how God responds when one sinner repents and comes home to him. See it too from the son's side. What a relief on his face. If you're a prodigal and you're tired of carrying the guilt, don't you know it's time for you to come home? Today, it's time. For you to come home. Verse 21. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And I'm sure he'd practiced this speech for days. But the father interrupts him. He doesn't even get to finish it. The father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. 
See, the family ring was a symbol of sonship. Jesus is making the point that this father isn't merely hiring him back as a servant. He is restoring him as a son and as an heir. Then the father says, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it. And let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Just like in heaven, when a sinner comes home to God, a party breaks out. Reminds me of the Sunday school teacher who quizzed his class. He said, boys and girls, who was sorry when the prodigal son returned home? One little boy surprisingly shouted, the fatted calf. (laughs) Which is correct. But that's not the answer the teacher expected. The answer the teacher expected is in verse 25. Now his older son, the older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. Now why didn't he just go into the house to see for himself? It was his house. See, I think it could be that he anticipated this happening. He knew his father's heart. He knew how much his father loved his younger brother. And he had anticipated this day when the son would come home. And he said to him, your brother has come. And because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. The older brother ends up pouting on the porch. But this father runs to both brothers. For therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. Sadly, this older son had lived in his father's house and worked in his father's fields and eaten at his father's table. But he had never embraced his father's heart. And it can happen. In real life, the Pharisees were the elder brothers. They were proud of how they had served God so diligently and refused to indulge in the evils of the Gentiles. Yet in truth, they were self-righteous. They were trying to earn God's love and obligate God to their agenda. See, that's what religion does. It attempts to make God our debtor. Oh, do this or do that, and God owes you now. When in reality, God owes no one. Every one of us, our only hope of salvation is to fall on our knees and admit our sin and trust in His grace. I believe the elder brother understood his father's extravagant love, but was critical of it. In his mind, the father's love isn't fair. Grace and mercy isn't fair. He refused to see his own sin and instead focused on the sin of his kid brother. Why was his brother getting what he hadn't earned? And this older brother stands in judgment of God. And in verse 29, he gives words to his complaint. The elder brother says, so he answered and said to his father, lo, these many years I've been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat 
that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And I hope you feel this boy's bitterness. His words reek with bitterness. Notice he doesn't say, my brother. He says, this son of yours. His heart is so full of self-righteousness and pride and judgmentalism. There's no room for grace to his brother. Little does does he know his own need for grace. And the father said to the older brother, and here's God's heart to us. Son, you are always with me. And all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad. For your brother was dead and is alive again. And was lost and is found. In God's value system, it is always right to celebrate mercy. It is always right to extend grace. One commentator writes this. In this chapter, there are four lost items. A sheep, a coin, a prodigal son, and his elder brother. The first three are obviously lost. The fourth is lost and doesn't know it. He's the tragic one. He doesn't have any awareness of his lostness. He has never strayed or broke the rules. And yet he missed out on the gift of the father's extravagant love. Understand, you don't have to be an alcoholic or a compulsive gambler or a criminal to be a prodigal son or daughter. Hey, the far in far country isn't measured in miles, but in the degree to which you've ignored or separated yourself from the grace and mercy of God. You may have lived your whole life in a Christian family or in the confines of a church or within the parameters of morality. But if your heart is cold and arrogant and self-righteous and judgmental, something is desperately wrong. You, my friend, are an older brother. The other brother, younger brother was unrighteous. But the older brother was self-righteous. And both separate a person from God. For some of us, it's time to stop looking down our nose at other sinners and admit that we're one too. Confess your sin. Humble yourself. Turn to God while you can. Here's some really good news. Our Father God desires for us to join the party. Make sure you've RSVP'd.